Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter. Uh, this is the podcast where I round up the best bits from my radio show on Talk Radio. This week, we meet Parth Patel, who talks about why the new lockdown rules are still harming the Black, Asian, minority ethnic community more than the white community, and just what the government needs to do to change that. Plus, Dr. Angelina Osborne introduces 100 Great Black Britons, and Tina Wilson talks about her new dating app, which lets your friends decide who you should go out with. First up, it's Path Patel. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Now, as we head towards, dare I say it, another lockdown, there are certain communities that are more worried about the impact on them than others. One of those being the Black, Asian, minority, ethnic community. We know from studies that were done during the last lockdown that the number of deaths, the infection rate was much higher amongst that community. And so scientists, doctors are calling for a greater understanding of how we can reach them. Joining us now, Parth Patel, who has worked on the report um, around the impact on the BAME community for the Institute of Public Policy and Research. Hi, Parth. Hey, Harriet. Thanks for having me on. That's no problem. Tell us a little bit about what your research has shown about the impact of lockdown rules on the BAME community. So our, our research is, is actually focused on how, how we can mitigate these, these disparities that exist in, in COVID-19. So what, what we know from earlier in this year is that COVID isn't affecting everyone equally. There's a two, three, four-fold difference in your risk of dying from COVID, depending on what ethnic community you're looking at compared to the white British population. We know these, these, these disparities exist, yet we've not seen any, any action to, to mitigate them. What the government has done is has acknowledged them. It says, wow, these inequalities exist. They're pretty stark. They've set up a new commission. They've refunded some new research. And that's all very welcome to better understand the problem. But what's, what it's done almost is it's distracted us from, from what's happening on the ground. And what's happened on the ground, Harriet, is nothing. There's, no, there's been no tailored or concerted action to better protect these minority ethnic communities from covid and what we'll see and what's already playing out is that these disparities are repeating. What could happen here? What could be done? Because I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking, well, do, is it going to get complicated if we have different messages for different communities? It's already complicated enough trying to work out who should be doing what, when. How could we make it better, in your opinion? Yeah, that's a, that's, 
it, that's exactly what the, the focus of our work at the IPPR is on, and it's, and it's no small task. I think, I think it's important <laughs> to remember that these, these inequalities, they're, they're nested in a much bigger problem, and that's the problem of, mm. of systemic racism. Co- COVID is just running along these racist grooves in our society. It didn't create them, but it's exposing them. It's maybe deepening, them, but it didn't create them. So it's, there's no easy fix here. And it's going to take a lot to dismantle this gargantuan structural racism. And so what we're saying is that we, we can't resolve, completely address these inequalities by this winter, but we can reduce them. And that's exactly what the focus of the work is. So what can we do? Um, so that, that, that takes us back to, to actually what's causing these disparities. And there's, no one's quite managed to pin this down here. When we look at the differences in the risk, the two, three, fourfold differences in death from COVID, depending on your ethnic group, um, we're saying maybe if we look at that risk, we can explain away about half of it. We could say about half of this chunk of this, this disparity is to do with deprivation and geography. But there's this other big chunk that we, cu- we don't quite understand at the moment. And that's the motivating factor behind all this new research, which is very welcome. I myself am a recipient of some of that research in my other job at UCL. But what, I guess what we can, what, when we think about the action that needs to happen, we, we think a bit simply, a bit more simply. So what we know, what do we know is that first, minority ethnic communities are more likely to get a COVID infection. They're more likely to get infected. That's the first thing. And the second thing we know is that when they do get the infection, when they have COVID, they seem to suffer more harm from it. So the consequences of having COVID are greater for you. And so we could, we could plan our action and policy around that. The first one, if we know they're getting the infection more commonly, let's better protect these communities from COVID. And then when they do have the infection, we know that they're having greater harm. So actually, let's increase access to treatment and support for these communities. And those are the two main pillars we can think about to reduce these, these inequalities this winter, if that makes any sense. It does. Ralph, one of the things that I hear a lot is that the reason there are more cases within minority ethnic communities is because those communities are more likely to have more generations living together, greater numbers of people living together, and therefore it passes around quicker. Is that true? That, that, that's a, it, it, it's a common thought, and that's, it's, it, the data is, is still unclear. So that's maybe one of the, the first point there. We don't actually quite have that data yet. And maybe that's a problem as to why we can't actually, we don't have that level of quality sort of data by ethnicity at that level. But it's um, sort of uh, anecdotally, that's what, what's, um, what's been said. And it's likely it's definitely contributing to some extent. Now, we don't know how much that's contributing, but we, we think that it's probably important, yes. And if the government is to try and address some of these issues, is it going to be able to do it using, I guess, the test and trace apps that it's set up now, the kind of the messaging it's sending out there? Is it going about it in the right way? Yeah, and my, my answer to that is it's probably not. So the approach the government's taken is sort of a one-size-fits-all broad brush approach. And... Really, I mean, the communication for me and you, Harry, it's already very mixed and muddled and U-turny. And what people don't think, actually, sort of metaphorical terms like shielding, it's not obvious to everyone what that means. Social bubbles, it's not clear to everyone what that means. And there's not been any tailored communication for for various communities to understand. That's sort of the first point. Now, on test and trace, I I could sit here all day and talk about that. Testing capacity is so obviously lacking, and that's that's there as 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 an obvious point. But tracing... It's the way we go about doing tracing. It's a clear and active choice. And that's less about having resources available. 
So relationships and engagement are a necessary first step in contact tracing. You have to be able to trust the person on the other end of the phone. Um, and the way to do that is to go through the local public health teams, the local teams who can collaborate and work with community organizations, with religious leaders, to better reach these communities, to make sure that the messages are getting through and people are understanding sort of what they need to do and why this is important, as opposed to sort of it being beckoned out from the center and the, this big gargantuan NHS test and trace system, which we know already and in the data that it's actually not as effective as a local team. So then the question, I guess, then is why has the centralized test and trace system got 10 billion pounds worth of funding, whereas the local authorities, which have been slashed over the past decade with austerity, just re received a, a minuscule 300 million in comparison? I mean, that is a great question. Why Why do you think that has happened? Is it, I, I put that to you, Path, what do you think is going on there? Uh, so I, I wouldn't want to speculate on how the government is giving out its contracts and deciding who should be running our test and trace system um, and what should be, what's going on there. I think it's very opaque and I think that's annoyed a lot of us. We can't quite see what the rationale and the logic is as to oppose as to giving out these big private sector contracts to, to firms that have absolutely no experience in public health. They've never worked in public health or contract tracing ever, whereas these local teams have been there for ages and know their communities. So I think from the outside, without having a foot in government, I just cannot see a single reason as to why they would have gone about awarding the contracts in that manner. I want to talk about something else you raised earlier, which is around the fact that a lot of uh, minority ethnic communities are more likely to be in a financially precarious situation. Mm. How do you think that is impacting on the infection rates and what, do you, what would you like the government to be doing about it? Yeah, and that, that, that's absolutely right. IPPR, actually, we, this, this week we, researched, we released some work that was looking at how the debt and finances have, have been sort of fallen unequally since the start of the pandemic. We showed that if you weren't white, you're twice as likely to be worried about paying your bills this winter. You were twice as likely to be out of work since the pandemic started. Um, and that, of course, interplays with how easy it is for you to isolate. If you're working uh, a job that, that probably is public-facing, public gig economy, low wage, if you don't have access to statutory sick pay, that's going to affect your impact, your ability to, to isolate. And I mean, th th it's there in the data, but actually, I think what people forget is that there are individuals behind all these numbers. And just think of an example from when I was working in A&E. Um, it was these sorts of questions that absolutely flummoxed me. Someone would come up to the door and, and, and they'd be well enough to not need to come to the hospital sort of saying, you've probably got the coronavirus, but I can't test you because we haven't got any te enough tests for people who aren't coming to the hospital. Right. So just go home and isolate um, and don't go to work for a few weeks and it'll be fine. But if you get worse, make sure you come back in. And then getting questions back like, okay, doc, that's fine. But if I don't go to work, if I don't drive my taxi for the next two weeks, I can't pay my bills. I, I won't be able to feed my children. And then mm. it, it just being absolutely plummets and not knowing what to say back to that is, is what was going on. Are any of the government grants they've announced going to help? I think they've, you know, they've announced one which says if you have to isolate, we'll give you some money. Things like that. Can that help in this situation? 
Absolutely, yeah. So that is imperative. And I'm actually going to say well done to the government. Very recently, they've announced a new package of £500 to isolate. It was initially trialled at a much smaller amount, £120 or so. And I think there were calls well around the, around the country saying this is the right initiative, but you need a lot more money than that. And they've listened to that. So kudos to the government. It's now, I think, £500 to isolate if you need to and if you're a low-wage worker. The issue with that is that it's not being rolled out you can't claim until, I think, the 28th of September. And I don't think yeah. it's even got, the machinery is going to be there till mid-October. You have to claim through your local authority in a backlog. So you have to sort of get through the month and then claim it back later. And as we just said, the fears about paying your bills for the next three months and how that falls unequally depending on your ethnicity. It's just yeah. the real politic of that on the ground is, is not fully considered. Well, do you think part of the reason that some of these things haven't been taken into consideration is due to the makeup of our current government? We look at it, it's a lot of white, middle-class, majority men making the decisions about this. Do you think they just don't have perhaps the life experiences to consider some of this stuff? That's that's an interesting question, Harriet. Um, So... On that latter point, I think life experiences are important. I think having diversity uh, has yeah. epistemic value. It's important. But at the, at the same time, I don't think it's, it's, it's as simple as that. I think the issues we're talking about, issues of racial justice, I don't think it matters what colour you are to be, to be driven by that, that issue. I think it's more about if, if what motivates you and what your values are and if values of justice and fairness are something that you hold highly addressing inequality. The government's serious about levelling up beyond just rhetoric. I think it would engage with this issue seriously, and it hasn't, but it's not just been this administration. This, these issues of, of racial justice haven't really been engaged with properly for a long time. Excellent point. Parth, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us this evening. It's Parth Patel um, working on the report there around how the current lockdown rules are still harming the black Asian minority ethnic communities here in the UK uh, for the Institute of Public Policy Research. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. 
Here on Badass Women's RXL, we love somebody who sees a part of history that hasn't been given enough attention and just decides to change it. And that's what our next guest did. Dr. Angelina Osborne realized that we simply didn't know enough about the great Black Britons of our history. And so she created a campaign called 100 Great Black Britons uh, to bring them to light. A long overdue book with the same name is now out and it honours the remarkable achievements of some key black British individuals over history and not just the ones you think you know. She joins us now. Hi, Angelina. Hello there. Good evening. First of all, tell me where the idea for the campaign came from. Okay, so back in 2003, there was a BBC uh, um, sort of national campaign called 100 Great Britons, where uh, people were invited to vote on who they thought the great, their greatest Britain was. And uh, of all the 100 people that, they, uh, that people nominated, not one of the nominations were for anybody of African or Asian heritage. So uh, in response to that, um, uh, that lack of any sort of African representation, um, Patrick Vernon and I, we uh, started a campaign uh, in 2003 called 100 Great Black Britons, which got uh, a quite significant amount of um, attention. That particular campaign um, voted uh, Mary Seacole, uh, the Jamaican nurse, as the greatest Black Briton. So it was from back then. And why have you decided to turn it into a book now? Okay, so we did um, back in two thousand three. We had a, a, a website, which is still which is still there, but um, we thought um, having a book, a sort of much more sort of tangible kind of representation of, of different people throughout history, um, would be better. We were also sort of thinking about what was happening around the whole sort of Brexit discourse. Um, as Britain voted to leave the EU in 2016, and also sort of the sort of the, uh, the scandal around uh, um, people from the Windrush generation, um, we thought that it would be really sort of timely to to re revive the campaign and just to keep within the national consciousness the contributions of uh, African and Caribbean people to the British historical narrative. How has it changed running the campaign now? Um, 17 years later from when it first started? Okay, so uh, one of the key things that's really changed things is that the, the rise in social media, much more social media platforms, it means that many more people can get... Um, be aware of what what we're doing but we're also we're also very sort of conscious we've been doing lots and lots we've got this great schools competition which has had a really overwhelming response um and also just um yeah the social media has really kind of changed things for us do you think people now are more or less aware of some of those great black britons um it's really difficult to tell i think um it depends who you ask, really. I still think, yeah. from my point of view, that people still still are not c totally aware, not as aware as yeah. one would like, hence the, the revival of the campaign. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about it is you say that actually lots of people sort of think of the Windrush generation as the first generation that really uh, changed the ethnic makeup of Britain, but that's actually not mm -hmm. true. And it's... Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I mean, you know, there's certainly there's archaeological evidence that there were African people living in Britain from the Roman period. 
there's archaeological evidence of African people living in Britain in the medieval period. And there is evidence of a continuous African presence since the Tudor period. So um, yeah. the people who are living, Africans who are living here in the Tudor period were um, from all walks of life. Um, they were doing all different kinds of jobs. They had uh, social and job mobility. Similarly, even during the period of the 18th century, at the height of the trade and trafficking in Africans, there was a sizable community of African people living here in Britain. Um, it's estimates, different estimates by historians, but at least uh, there's an estimate of 20,000 uh, people. And certainly they were certainly visible enough for people like Hogarth to paint them and other painters to, to remark upon their presence. So we're talking about a consistent presence from at least at least 2,000 years. When you put the campaign together, was there anything that you learnt or anything that surprised you? Um, one of the things that I learned um, uh, was about the, so really the the story of um, a couple of boxers, um, Bill Richmond and Thomas Molyneux. They were both very successful um, bare knuckle boxers in the wow. 18th century. And I found their stories quite remarkable, um, given especially that Bill Richmond didn't even really start boxing until he was 41 years old huh? and became a, uh, became a champion. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> and It's um, never too late. No, it's never too late to, uh, to, to, to live your dreams, I guess. But um, he's also credited for uh, designing sort of the boxing ring. So it was raised up in the way that we see it today. You know, he was um, oh, wow. and he was a very successful boxer. He had his own pub mm -hmm. in, in, in central London, not far from Leicester Square. So, um, yeah. So, you know, his his story to me was particularly surprising. I'd heard of him, but I hadn't read, you know, in the in the course of doing the research for the book. I read much more greater detail about where his origins and his boxing record and what and it's just it was really really surprising to me that how successful he was. Why do you think campaigns like this are important? Um, I think campaigns like this are important because um, often it's the, the own you know you're not going to get um, I don't know it's because there's a lack of um well I'm sure it's not really it's not embedded it embedded enough into the national memory so it's really important to keep doing these campaigns to keep reminding people about about this about the historical narrative being a global narrative rather than just a very narrow narrative with the hope that one day and eventually that people will sort of put, put it in a place embed it in a way that it's just common knowledge to everybody would you like to see this taken on? You said you're doing some work on social media with schools. You've got a school campaign. Do you think actually we need to be really looking at our the history curriculum of the UK and updating it almost? Well, yes, absolutely. I think um, at the moment um, it's really an elective. You can choose yeah. uh, to teach uh, Black British history. It is not embedded as a compulsory element of the of the curriculum so teachers can either choose to teach it or not 
there are lots of really great really terrific teachers who are who are really wanting this material are teaching this having material to teach in class in schools but as i said if you don't want to teach it you don't have to and that's the that's the challenge that we continue to face today is getting uh, the government to, to appreciate the importance of it being embedded within the curriculum as as compulsory and not as an elective and finally do you think are you expecting any new great Black Britons on the list this year? I mean, there's all, you know, you know, we had a list uh, of well over 500 people. Um, oh. You know, we had a, a very, very large list that we had to sort of whittle down to the hundred that are in the book. So, you know, you know, there's, I think there's always scope for, you know, adding, um, more people in other in different editions you know while people and you know until you know once people get familiar with who's in the book then we can then include those other people that we didn't include who's your personal hero um my personal hero is um claudia jones um she's a, a woman she is uh, credited with starting the carnival the notting hill carnival oh, which wonderful. first started in uh st pancras town hall in 1959 and uh the reason why she uh, she and others decided to have the carnival was because there was a lot of racial unrest up you know as more and more caribbean people started to uh, settle here there was a real backlash and they were being attacked a lot you know um attacked beaten up on the streets and so there were two um upright two disturbances i would say uh, in notting hill in and in nottingham in 1958 and as a way sort of for cohesion to bring people together one these this was one of the ideas that could bring people together bring um caribbean britons and white britons together was through culture and music and uh, celebrating each other's music and a sort of cultural exchange. And so the Nottingham Carnival in its first manifestation was a, pretty much a brainchild of, of Claudia Jones. She's a great pick and it sounds fantastic. I believe the book is out now, uh, 100 is. Great Black Britons. Dr. Angelina Osborne, thank you so much for A, starting the campaign brilliant idea uh, and also coming on to talk to us all about it and about your heroes as well thank you this is the badass women's hour podcast you can get in touch on all the socials on at badass women's hour are you finding yourself a little lonely are you facing the thought of another lockdown single with dread well our next guest might be able to help you Tina Wilson is the CEO and founder of the Wingman Dating App, an app that is designed to make dating a less solitary experience. It's not just you out there on your own. You can bring your wing men or women with you. Uh, she joins us now to talk about it. Hi, Tina. Hi there. How are you? Good. Thank you. First of all, tell us, why did you decide to create a dating app? Well, have you tried online dating? I mean, it's um, not for the faint-hearted. <laughs> It is not for the faint-hearted, I agree. Do you know what? I came out of a, a long relationship and when I came out, I realised everyone had moved online and all of my girlfriends were in relationships and so my kind of, I, I turned to online dating reluctantly. But I had so many frustrating experiences that I just thought there has to be a different way. Like I want something that's more in keeping with real life or a night out. 
And so I went about creating like what would be an ideal experience for like me and my friends. And what I didn't realize was that there were so many different people out there that had similar frustrations. And so, you know, we're bringing a completely different audience of person to the dating world that would normally not do it. I really like this idea that actually you can get your friends involved because I've definitely, you know, been on a night out with my girlfriends and I was single, I'd give them my phone and they could swipe for me. They loved it. And you kind of incorporated that into the app. Is that right? That is right. And you know what? We've all done it, right? We, we're great at giving advice. We're not always great at taking it. Um, and I think the same can be said for the love life. So for me, Wingman is about creating opportunities and elevating our single friends when they may not be at their most confident, pushing them to kind of their best self. And for me, I never liked writing a bio for myself and it's hard to be kind of promotional without sounding corny but my friends on the other hand could describe me and when one of my friends wrote a profile for me on a traditional dating site I was like oh I sound quite excellent sounded a bit feisty but and you know a bit feisty and it would have put a few people off but actually that was great in the long run because I'm not for the faint-hearted and so you know, just by by excluding those people, I was attracting people that, you know, were more in keeping with what I really needed in my life. Do you think that we have tired of app dating in 2020 or has it flourished? I mean, online dating as a whole is up over 350%, right? As people wow. are forced. Yeah, and that's just traditional online dating. On Wingman, we're nearly at 500% increase in engagement. <gasps> I know. And I think for us, it's been, you know, overall, you know, I'm talking more like the UK and the US markets because that's where we are. Um, But traditional online dating is up 350% in both. So for me, it's because people don't want to put their love lives on hold. People are more isolated than ever. And so they're finding different ways to connect um, with people. And I mean, thank God we have these platforms to connect. Otherwise, it would be so isolating, especially for the singles. Has COVID changed how we date? I mean, I know at the beginning of the whole pandemic, we were talking about how it was going to create a sort of a rise in slower dating where everyone took more time. Do you think that's actually happening? I think it is happening. I definitely think we're seeing over a quality, over quantity approach to dating um, with hookup culture being dead and people not able to meet up casually as they were. People are taking longer to find out more about the person and that kind of it's not old fashioned courtship, but it's just more it's more of a patient approach to dating. I think in the past we've been so, you know, at ease to find somebody that was a mile away from us and we could meet them immediately. That doesn't necessarily lead to great relationships. So I think even though it probably is a little slower, we're going to have more quality matches um, over time. Do you think there are any is there any new dating etiquette? because of COVID, anything we should or shouldn't be doing? I don't, kissing is a no-no. We <laughs> do various polls um, with, our, with our users and mm. 98% of singles said they would be horrified if somebody lent in for a date, uh, went, lent in for a kiss. Um, and I think now it's just checking in before you even get on a date that you are on the same page about what that looks like, whether that's yeah. social distancing and stuff. So many people have varying opinions as to what is okay and that's a big divider before you even meet I think first date etiquette is definitely you need to check in and make sure that you're going to be comfortable when you do meet up 
I mean, I saw an article on the BBC the other day, which was all about people having sex in masks. I, I was like, I feel like we're creating oh. a generation of people with some very strange ideas about relationships. I mean, it's definitely a bit more of a fetish side of <laughs> fetish side of the, of the world, isn't it? And do you know what? So actually, I did read that the same. I read the same that masks are a thing. And do you know, I think it's really fun that maybe people are experimenting and stuff. And maybe that's what they're doing in, you know, relationships and stuff. But I think for us, like with the singles that we talk to, you know, across the UK and the US, people are definitely more cautious about meeting up and a bit more nervous. And so... That may be happening. I, you know, that wouldn't be my bag. But I think it's, you know, who knows what Corona is driving us to here. How did you go about starting a dating app? So, because uh, I think you're quite right. There are lots of people out there who have had terrible experiences dating online. And like, I'm sure I can do it better. Did you come from a tech background? Did you have to get a team together? What was the process? Oh, my God goodness a lot of gray hair um came from it because my background is not technology in fact i had a blackberry when i began this experience um i was working in interior design i had no concept of what it took to build an app but i just knew the problems that i wanted to fix i just knew what i would like to feel like when i used it so i came to it with a view of what you know what would make me feel more connected and more comfortable as opposed to a coder that would come to it creating an experience that maybe you know wasn't in keeping with with real life and it was definitely a roller coaster journey but what i did learn is that you know i know more about code than i ever thought i would but you know i think being open and just ask you know hiring the right people getting together you know, lots of different opinions and just being open to make sure that you're going to build that product for the most people was key. And I was just obsessed by focus groups and I loved getting bad <laughs> feedback about the product. I loved it when people told me what they hated and what they loved when I was creating it. Because for me, it just came from a real, you know, a real honest place. And I just wanted to make it as, as keeping in real life as we could. Um, because, you know, that's what being a wingman and a friend is about. It's that banter and friendship. And I wanted it to be about dating, but I also wanted it to be about elevating, you know, people that we know who are single and whether that's our mum or our friends, I wanted to kind of help yeah. them be their best self. And so coming to it with that passion, I think sort of drove me through the darker days of creating this. Um, and so, you know, when I see people using it and helping each other now, it's like so satisfying for me to see that. Has it changed how you feel about dating? Has creating a dating app changed how you view the experience? Well, I probably went on 300 dating apps before <gasps> I created the experience because I wanted to see what was out there. Right, So yeah. I went from the very weird and wonderful to the very traditional <laughs> because I wanted to see what was there. And you know what? One of the thing is, it's just there are millions of people. No one wants the same thing. Everybody's looking for something different. And and so for me, it was like trying to put myself in a lane that was that was kind of my lane and not, you know, not drifting over into the hookup culture and stuff. And so it's always been about, you know, your wingman knows you best. So whether you are a bit of a weirdo and whether you are, you know, a techie or a rock star or whatever you are, it's about someone telling the world how great you are and pushing you to meet that person. I think from the 300 dating apps I've seen, 
there were some really bad experiences and some weird mm. stuff happening. Um, so, you know, I think it's just nothing is off book anymore. You know, people are so yeah. used to getting what they want instantly and there's something out there for everyone at any moment that they want. So I think the variety is what surprised me the most. I think that's really interesting, isn't it? Because sort of there is this weird randomness about dating apps, right? So there's this weird, you know, you scroll through people and you see somebody you quite like the look of and suddenly that's it, you could be in a relationship with them. Whereas previously, you know, they might have known a friend of a friend or you might have met them locally. There would be something to kind of ground it. Do you think getting your friends involved actually then maybe creates a bit of that sort of safety checking almost before you go too far? Absolutely. That was one of the things I loved about having friends on the journey with me. And that isn't just because I'm a nervous nervous and didn't want to meet people. It's just sometimes you can't see the wood for the trees when you're looking on your own. And in an ideal world, we would all be able to meet someone that our friend knows. Right? And so yeah. if I had, but unfortunately, the world just doesn't work like that. But I would say the one thing I am able to see is that from my experience, my friends who were single, I could spot someone that would be a great match for them on a dating app, but they probably would never join that dating app, right? Because they don't want to describe themselves and they feel there's a bit of a stigma attached. But I would just think if I could put you two together and you know you like each other, you could go you know, go have some fun. And so for me, it was always about that. It was just kind of getting from A to B in a quicker way to connect people. And for me, you know, friends, when they are pre-approving people, um, they have a different, a different view of who you should date sometimes to who you, you know, you think you want. Um, and so friends, when they're swiping for you and they're making those introductions, because whilst they're swiping like you do on Tinder, you are going a step further with wingman, basically saying, this is my friend. Aren't they great? You're kind of pushing them in the front of front of them. So we're not really polite, um, but we're like, look how great my friend is. Do you want to meet them? And that's a yes or a no. And and so for us, the fact that your friend even thinks you're going to get on, even if they may not be exactly what you would go for initially the fact that a friend has thought something's interesting about them you're going to give them more time than you ordinarily would and I think also it pushes you to date outside your comfort zone doesn't it because I mean I certainly know that like the people that I would probably pick I'm not sure my girlfriends would pick for me and vice versa I have a great girlfriend who does a lot of online dating and I've had to ban her from swiping right on anyone who's wearing aviator sunglasses I'm like no it doesn't work out let them go yeah (laughs) you know what you're absolutely right right because you're not emotionally attached to that experience you're able to be objective and you'll be able to be like why are you making this you know mistake again and it doesn't matter if you are single or married when you love someone and they're your friends you're like why are you doing this again like I would have friends shaking their head at me you know me saying oh well you know I've I've met this person he seems quite nice and they're like why are you even bothering this is going to end in tears this is horrible and I would be like no you know you just never know and of course it ended in tears and it was terrible but it's just sometimes that you can't always take your own advice it's a bit similar to that it is, isn't it? Do you think that, I mean, you said that, but I thought it was quite interesting, you said people that are still less likely to put themselves on dating sites. Have, have we reached peak dating site yet or is there still some way to go? I mean, I've been on quite a few, so I feel like we must have reached it, but maybe we haven't. I don't think we have. You know, the, the amount of people that we have brought online um, that have never used a dating app before has been 
huge, right? And I was surprised when I was when we launched it in New York. I remember thinking, you know, you know, New York is so forward thinking and people are really confident. Yet less than forty percent of them used online dating um, because they were kind of in executive jobs and they didn't feel appropriate to use it. They didn't want to describe themselves. And there was this one guy who was a plastic surgeon who said, no, I can't put myself on there. And I'm like, dude, you're a plastic surgeon. You're going to be snapped up. <laughs> I, like people will love you. Um, and, and so, you know, he, his, his sister put him on there. And he said, yeah, you know, it's a different experience for me because I would never be comfortable using, you know, a dating profile. And so for that, just that one person alone, it's like for every one person that's like that, that's an extra person that's coming in that may ordinarily not meet their match. So having that broad audience for us, I think it's definitely helped us to differentiate from the traditional single looking for a single, right? Because we have a different yeah. kind of focus. And finally, Gina, I have to ask you, you obviously started this app because you were online dating yourself. Have you found someone? I have. And you know what? I would love to say that I met him on the app because that would just be my best story. <laughs> I actually, I, a friend introduced me to him and she said she was working at um, she was working at a company he was at, and she said to me, "Do you know what? I met this really strange Brit. He's more sarcastic than you. You guys should meet." And I was like, "Oh God, he sounds charming." That was it, right? There was something in it. So I ended up meeting him for a drink. We didn't date for about six months, and then here we are, locked down. Uh, you know, living together in a pandemic. And I said to her, what was it about that that you could spot for me? Because I wouldn't have thought he was my type. And she said, you know what? I just don't know. I just, I had a bit of an insight that you would get on, your banter was the same, you had the same kind of life, you know, life, you've grown up the same. So I, I don't know what it was really. I just thought they'd get on. And I think for us, it's like we're not a matchmaking site. We're not arranged marriage. We are about... Yeah. Just the people that love you and are looking out for you, helping you dodge those dodgy aviator pictures like you're doing for your friends. <laughs> if you do that, you know, you're winning. I think it sounds absolutely great. And uh, I really hope I'm going to go check it out now and see which of my friends please I can put on it. do. No aviators. Please put, please no put on aviators. your profile. If you wear aviators, do not approach my friends. You've got to be outspoken about it. That. You should. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tina. Tina Wilson, the CEO and founder of the Wingman Dating App. If you think you're not up for internet dating, maybe you need to get your friends on the case for you. Uh, go check it out. 350% surge in online dating since the pandemic. Are none of us social distancing? Have we all forgotten? You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more badass guests and in-depth chat. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.